This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, I'm talking to Susan Butler about her debut novel, Signet. Susan Butler is a writer, artist and dramaturge born in Washington, D.C. Through her work, she explores her interest in identity and otherness, the opportunities and traps of hindsight and hope, and what it means to look forward to an increasingly wily future. An early draft of her debut novel, Signet, which we're going to be talking about today, was shortlisted for the SI Leeds Prize for Unpublished Fiction by Black and Asian Women. She lives and works between London and Berlin, and today she's in London. Susan Welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you so much for having me. So how would you describe Signet? Well, uh, Signet is a coming-of-age novel that's very much set within uh, the anxieties and also some of the optimisms of our contemporary moment. So the plot centers on an island that's an old-age separatist community. This group of people who are over 65 have decided to completely turn their backs on the youth-obsessed, old-age, marginalizing mainstream world, and they've um, kind of created this space just for themselves. Uh, One of their number uh, has a granddaughter who found herself in a spot of trouble taken in by social services, and um, so she allowed the granddaughter to come and stay for what was supposed to be just a couple of weeks. Then the grandmother dies, and the protagonist of Signet is this granddaughter who's found herself stranded in an old-age separatist community on an island in the Atlantic. And so known as the kid, she's the narrator of the story. It's the first person narration. She's 17, turns 18 during the during the course of the book. Tell us more about her, where she came from. So the the narrator has kind of come from all over. She doesn't really have a home, and that's one of the defining features of her kind of existence in this fictional world. Anywhere she's been for a short space of time, if, if that's been Colorado or L.A. or Boston or New York, uh, there's always been some reason why she's had to move on. And that's also the case out here on Swan Island. And you said she's been in care for a period of time and her parents are, as the book begins, drug addicts. But there's scenes of a past where they've had better times. There's scenes set in California where her mother's a singer. Tell us something about that. I think I'm really interested in marginalised identities and their actual lives. Um, I think both old people, drug addicts, young black girls are often heavily stereotyped when there there's no one single way to be a junkie. And, and if we were going to generalize, I'd say a, a lot of people who live in addiction are interesting, artistic, sensitive, poetic, intelligent people. Um, and so, yeah, life, life is rarely as homogeneous as um, stereotyping might make it seem. And there's a point in the book where you talk about people that are, you know, perhaps wealthy, casual users of drugs look upon drug-addicted people as if they're also just having a great time at the weekend, like life's one long party. Yeah, yeah, which is um, which is bullshit. 
one of the rudest things I think you can say to somebody who's in addiction is like, oh, well, you like your drink or, oh, you like a bit of Coke. And it's like it's it's not a matter of like um, that. That's a total misunderstanding of the situation. One of the other characters in the book, Jason, her fantasy boyfriend, once a month lover. Tell us about the role he plays on the island. Jason, Jason was a fun character to write. He's one of the few people who easily comes and goes on and off Swan Island. The the islanders, um, part of their kind of micro economy, is um, they they grow their own strain of weed, and um, Jason acts as a kind of two way. Hmm, is there a nicer way of saying drug mule, um, you know, drug courier, <laughs> um, a kind of drug conduit, uh, where um, he's the swan's kind of agent and distributor. Um, distributor. Yeah. That, that's uh, that's very entrepreneurial and enterprising. Yeah, so um, so Jason comes and, uh, and collects the goods to sell on the mainland, um, which helps the swans kind of maintain their independence. Uh, but he also brings in the kinds of things that they don't grow themselves. And so... Uh, uh, Viagra, for instance. Yeah, yeah he yeah, <laughs> he brings in the uh, the Canadian internet Viagra and, um, you know, so the, the acid tabs and, um, you know, various other fun bits to keep retirement lively. And one of the other characters on the island I wanted to talk about in some detail, Mrs. Tyburn, who is this elderly rich woman that obviously once, you know, has this a form of beauty, but I'll say form of beauty, um, that the kid works for. The job that you've invented for her is incredible. She's basically editing this woman's life. Tell me about that. Yeah, this was actually... um... I sort of exploded a real-life job that a friend of mine in New York has. Oh, wow, this um, is a real thing. <laughs> I found it so interesting when I heard about it that I knew that I was going to fold it into fiction in some way. But yes, yeah, so um, the protagonist uh, has found one way of making money. So Mrs. Tyburn is uh, the most, the wealthiest of the swans on Swan Island, and um, she pays the kid $5 an hour to go through and digitize her archive. But um, that involves a lot of Photoshop and um, a lot of going through and making her past look like it was perfect and also making it look like Mrs. Tyburn didn't have any kind of responsibility for any of the imperfections of the past. She's literally basically changing details of all of the photographs, what her daughter's body looks like, for instance, you know, and trips that they've had and things in the past. It's it's an extreme version of sort of remembering the past. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think it it charts on pretty well to the way people are uh, making their archive in the present tense of the moment with digital photography filters and the way that we can set things up so that when we look back on all of this huge amount of kind of archival material we're always generating, which I always wonder how much we're actually going to ever look at. Um, yeah, we, we're very much um, doing it with a view of hindsight. Well, this is the thing, isn't it? Because like everything we do now, we take many more photographs, but they're all digital. So at best, they're on some hard drive somewhere that might, you know one day just die whereas like everything else in the past used to be actual physical medium you know she spends time doctoring you know film footage of holiday trips and things for instance 
Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, the first step then is to take it from analog to digital and to kind of to make the conversion that makes it possible to make these changes, um, which already leads us into the territory of uh, generation loss, which is, yeah, that um, that loss of that little something that you always get when you go from an analog to a digital copy. That's actually a really good sort of metaphor for a lot of things that happen in the story. I think the idea of generation loss in lots of different ways that you can use the word generation. Um, the islands themselves, now they're actually a real place, aren't they? Uh, yes and no. Um, so this novel is based in the Shoals, which is a nine island archipelago off the coast of New Hampshire. And um, I've added a fictional 10th island mm-hmm. to the archipelago. So um, doing research for the setting, I went out to Star Island, which is a real beautiful uh, retreat center. Yeah, so I went out to um, Star Island and um, Swan is is basically based on Star. I had a, a picture of Star Island above my writing desk flipped upside down um, as a, a kind of touchstone. So the uh, really funny thing about that research trip to Star was that um, on Star Island, there are retreats and kind of conferences, um, and it's staffed by a group of people called the Pelicans. And um, the Pelicans, though, are all really young people, kind of um, high school and college students. Uh, And I found myself the oldest person in this group of people as I was volunteering to help out there, um, writing a book about one person who was like vastly the youngest person. So um, so the, the pelicans kind of grew up into the swans in my fictionalization. Tell me more about actually plotting this community then when you were you were creating your own Swan Island. Tell me something about the actual, you know, the world building. This was uh, really fun because it was, I think for me, a matter of, of constantly raising the stakes. And so I really started with this notion of the protagonist's job and the implications of what it means to be able to change the appearance of the past but not really have any agency over your own present or future. And so that was the central part of the setup that's kind of been there from the beginning. And at first it was a small town, but that didn't seem somehow um, closed enough or high stakes enough. Um, So the setting on an island kind of made that a bit more, um, made the whole thing uh, heighten in stakes for me. Another little research moment that meant a lot, I found myself in County Antrim in Northern Ireland in a little apartment just by the sea, and I could hear the tides outside. And I was listening to Radio 4 one morning, and someone um, on a program on Radio 4 was talking about coastal erosion I think along the North Norfolk coast. And I remember this woman talking about her home and not being able to open one of the doors in her home because um, the coastline had eroded so far underneath the foundations of her house that her family kind of couldn't use their whole house anymore. But um, they had nowhere else to go. The insurance company didn't want to know about it. The local authority couldn't help. And just this this hopelessness and this sense of looming disenfranchisement was really disturbing. And um, so I hope to capture some of that. And so there are all of these bits of research that ended up kind of collapsing 
into the story I've ended up with. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Listen to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Susan Butler, and we're talking about her debut novel, Signet. And Susan, I want to talk about the idea of the old age separatist community itself. And to get into that, the kid, she's a young black woman, and she goes to this island and immediately experiences prejudice. But, like, most obviously, this is the prejudice of the old to the young, isn't it? Well, yes and no. So um, I did want to look at structures of exclusion and marginalization, but I didn't necessarily want to take this through some of the more familiar roots of um, anti-black racism, certain kinds of class biases, although those things are definitely there. And for me, issues like coastal erosion caused by climate change, um, addiction, poverty, uh, labor exploitation that she's all experiencing are all definitely part of her experience as someone with a lower class status, a female black person, a young person. So at the same time as this character is definitely experiencing some social exclusion, on the flip side of that, she's also in a space that's a privileged space for a marginalized identity. And so um, the the swans, or the Wrinkleys, as they like to call themselves, have, have claimed their marginalization. Um, they're like, yeah, we're old people getting old, and, um, and we don't need the society that stereotypes us. We're making a privileged space for ourselves. And I think that those spaces are important, you know, sort of all female spaces, all black spaces. Um, and so this is where I was trying to create something that wasn't quite as black and white as these people hate her because she's young. And you mentioned in the first part, you know, their idea that the world, the bad place, as they describe it, the mainland is, you know, become more violent. It's youth obsessed, um, prejudiced against people of age. Um, but of course, we can flip that because this is this is the story about climate change. And 
this is the generation that's responsible for that climate change. We could also dis- also describe these people as basically running away from their responsibilities on the mainland. And I'm thinking particularly here of there's a, you know, sort of classic baby boomer hippie couple who listen to the Grateful Dead and stuff. And it's, you know, it's exactly these people that are to, that are to blame for a lot of that climate change. I'm going to go ahead and disagree with you there. <laughs> um, I think that that is a, a sometimes apt generalization to make, but I think that it really obscures the real truth. Because this is also the generation that gave us the environmentalist movement as we know it. I mean, this is the silent spring generation. This is the generation that said, ban the bomb and reveled in the sexual revolution. So I think that the reason why I wanted to really complicate the intergenerational conflict is because I don't think that blaming the baby boomers is actually a good direction uh, for our anger. It is the global 1%. It's the corporations who knew that they were poisoning the planet and told us the opposite. Um, And so I I think that um, these are definitely the the people who are sounding the klaxon and have been doing that for the past 30, 40, 50 years, uh, while at the same time, um, the the political will and the infrastructure hasn't been there to make the kinds of meaningful changes we've needed. You talked about the house on the North Norfolk coast in, in the first half and, and the house, uh, the kid's grandmother's house isn't exactly this position. It's right on the cliff edge. As she sleeps at night, large parts of the cliff are falling down. Cracks are appearing in the house. Um, the house itself also, I guess, acts as a metaphor for her own fractured mental state, doesn't it? Yeah, yep, yeah, yeah, her internal state and, and also her her social positioning. There's no solid ground to be in. And the way that when people are in a position of marginalization, it seems like it's just always opposite day. Things that should be, you know, safe as houses are, are actually a, a source of crippling debt. Things that should provide you with security are actually a source of anxiety. And um, I wanted to place her in a situation where old certainties are operating in wildly unpredictable ways. I wanted to talk about how you deal with her anxiety in the book. And of course, they are, it is entirely indistinguishable from her precariousness, the position, the marginalisation, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I, I think the question of anxiety being written off as all in your head is a really unhelpful way of thinking about what anxiety actually is because well yes it's all in your head but but so is your vision and your sense of smell and your ability to operate your limbs I mean um, that doesn't make things any less real and the way that the internal and external compound each other and the the way that the um, biological and social can compound each other I wanted to make very present in the book. Can we talk about her relationship with the sea? Because, you know, everybody on the island keeps telling her that, you know, there's nowhere on the island where you can't see the sea. And she hates the sea. She hates this fact about it. Yeah. I wanted to give her a very different relationship with the natural world than the one that we might expect. I I think people take it for granted um, that the sea is magnificent and beautiful. And... um, 
when when I was around the kid's age, I'd started to develop uh, an aquaphobia of my own. And um, and so uh, far from being something kind of majestic and comforting or desirable, the, the sea is big and vast and cold and threatening. So I, and I, I think that a lot of the ways in which the sea is configured in terms of the transatlantic slave trade, flooding and other kinds of natural disasters can really bring a, a different kind of perspective on what it is. Um, and I want to stick with sort of ideas of environmental collapse as well. You know, we've talked about the house. The setting of the book is sort of present day, perhaps slightly in the future. It's a little in the past. A little in the past. Mm, but um, but you're not the first person with the perception that it's a near future. Well, I was just thinking of things like, you know, like the talk about the bees. Like we all do know that, like, you know, the bees are important, but it seems like they're in a more precarious place, perhaps in this book, than they are at the moment. I was really scared as this book was coming to its kind of uh, final drafts and going through some editorial processes. And so, you know, kind of maybe three or four years ago, actually worried that the the whole bee thing, a, a lot of the environmental stuff was going to be completely uh, passe, that it will have totally dated by then. So, um, yeah, we've been talking about collapses of bee colonies now and the whole populations and what that means for, for a long time. But it, it is important to me through this book and through certain um, elements in it, like the bell that doesn't necessarily ring on the hour, Mm -hmm. that our concepts of time are complicated, that life milestones don't necessarily mean the thing that we think that they're going to mean. Things that we always thought that we could count on won't necessarily happen this way. So um, so I'm gratified when people aren't really sure where, where in time it's set. That was a, a very diplomatic way of putting it, I think. Um, one more thing, and then I'll, I'll get you to, to read a bit of the book, if you would. I want to talk about other writers that have perhaps influenced this book. And actually, you sort of, not necessarily as an influence, but I enjoyed how you, you know, you allude to other writers in the book. There's like um, a vague allusion to Diana Atthill and Ray Bradbury at one point. And um, yeah, who else would you say was, a, was an influence on your writing in general? I've read Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye several times. This narrator who is extremely self-aware and aware of how she's coming of age into social marginalization, but because she's so young, there just really isn't anything she can do about it. Um, and so the all of these kind of internal battles happen within Toni Morrison's protagonist, Claudia, uh, where she's just trying to retain some sense of who she is as everything around her is um, kind of clawing away at it. And um, it, it brought a new perspective into the idea of coming of age, which is often a sort of heroic journey into some sense of freedom uh, rather than something that's actually quite threatening. Um, can I get you to finish it off by reading this a bit? Sure thing. I think most people have some part of their neighborhood where they never go. An uninspiring park, a corner where men sit and make noise when you walk by, the yard where a dog barks and lunges and flings ropes of froth from its gums, the street where cars go slow and stop without really parking, 
and the transactions are quick and furtive. For me, that part of the neighborhood is the sea. It leaves me alone, and I leave it alone. Except that lately, it doesn't. I try not to look over my shoulder and across my shrunken backyard. I'm pretty good at it now after six months of practice. I keep my eyes forward as I head around the house, or look down at the stumpy green and brown spikes of grass and choose my path carefully as I walk up the little hill. I feel ungrateful, but I hate it so much, this view, this breathtaking view. Most people would think I'm lucky to have it. I am, I know, but I hate it. It's like falling through noise. Christ, the ocean makes so much noise, it's like a jet engine. But no one complains because the ocean is beautiful, and beauty lets you get away with murder. My chest closes up. I turn my back to it, but the noise persists. It keeps coming, and even though I can't breathe, I somehow have to outrun it while it roars at me, drooling with its hunger to swallow me up. So I've been talking to Susan Butler. We've been talking about her debut novel, Signet, which is out now from Dialogue Books in the UK. Susan, thank you so much for coming in and telling me about it. Thanks so much for having me. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Thank you.